I mean, had Ashbery, people argue, some people argue it ended in 66. I don't, I don't think so. It's somewhere, in, definitely by the end of 67, it had, uh, there were too many negative influences coming mm. in. But for a while, it was a um, psychedelic paradise. My life used to feel like I was stuck on autopilot, trapped in the same thought loops, worries, and fears. Then something major happened. Enter psychedelics. My name is Kat Walsh, and you're listening to Trip On This. Join me as we journey together into these mysterious realms, discussing everything from personal transformation, otherworldly experiences, and practical at-home tips. Welcome, fellow traveler, to the land of limitless possibilities. Welcome back, my friends. It's your host, Kat Walsh. Thank you all so much for tuning back in to another episode of Trip On This. We got something different for us today. Today, we are getting into a time machine, and we are heading back to the 1960s, folks. That's right. I'm with the author, Paul Justison. He has recently released a book called Lost and Found in the 1960s, and it is about what we'd imagine, what it was like to actually be a, quote, hippie, somebody who was part of the psychedelic movement during the 1960s. I hope you all enjoy this throwback episode with my guest, Paul Justison. Paul Justison, thank you so much for coming on the show to trip on this. I am so excited to take a trip down memory lane with you, pun intended. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you came to me through your publisher. You've just written your first novel, Lost and Found in the 60s, which I have. I'm in the middle of reading and I immediately, like I said to you, was like, I would love to have this man on specifically because you know, of course, I have heard about the 60s era, the flowered child era, you know, I've seen video, but I've actually never spoken to anyone who directly lived the experience. I know people who lived in the time frame, but weren't actually involved. Where you, you've got quite a bit of stories right in the thick of it. And I think it's going to be really fun for people to take this trip with you and, and go in this like blast to the past. So why don't we start a little bit with your background? I know you're not from San Francisco. Where are you from? And how did you get yourself involved in Aid Ashbury in this time? My, my family moved around a lot. I was actually born on the East Coast. I went to high school in Arizona for mm -hmm. um, sophomore, junior, senior years. Well, I left in the middle of my senior year. But um, during my senior year, I became both very politically radical and I began to experiment a lot with marijuana and mm -hmm. with other other drugs, psychedelic drugs. And at a certain point, my home life, many people have difficult childhoods and parents. I, I had one too. But at a certain point, my between my school, which was very conservative, mm -hmm. and I was very politically left. And so I was constantly in trouble just for wearing anti-war buttons. A few other problems happened. And I just had to leave. I couldn't survive anymore yeah. in that environment. And uh, I knew people who lived in San Francisco at the time. And uh, so I, I went to live with them. Uh, and um, I actually bounced back and forth between uh, San Francisco and Tucson for a while. Uh, and then I stuck when I got a job in the post office. Lived right in the middle, well, not in the middle of Haight-Ashbury, right on the side of the Panhandle, three blocks from 8th Street. Uh, and so I, I had a very um, <laughs> enjoyable situation. I'd take mm -hmm. the bus to work. Down Hate Street or down or not down, down Hayes. Uh, and in the evening when I got off about 1130, got 
back to near my flat at midnight, there were parties going on everywhere. So all I had to do is somehow make it to work the next day, <laughs> right. which, wasn't, which wasn't too hard. Yeah. I was working out on the loading dock. So I, I survived doing that quite quite well for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and I only got into drug dealing just um, happenstance, uh, just mostly because I was, um, I don't know, I, I just learned how to be relaxed around danger. So I was a little cooler about certain mm-hmm. things. And mm-hmm. so chemists uh, like that. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was an organized kind of kid. That um, was just my nature. Whether it's even in school, I was, you know, I turned my papers in on time, they were all clean and footnotes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I may have been radical, but I was knew how to be organized. <laughs> Are you a Virgo? Uh, no, okay. no Sagittarius. Sagittarius. <laughs> okay, fair. Um, so um, I, I easily transitioned into being a middleman in the LSD trade. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did that for a while until, uh, you know, I was young. And uh, so it really doesn't paying too much attention to risks and consequences. Sure. But after a while, you know, just it is stressful after a while. Yeah, yeah <laughs> after absolutely. A while, I, I decided that wasn't right for me. So I, I left that part of the, I didn't leave the world of the counterculture, but I left being a major part of the um, LSD trade. Got it. I thank you so much for that background. And I kind of want to now bring you back a little bit to that. So you're back, you're back in Arizona. Um, would you say that your experiences with, let's just say cannabis and other psychedelics were uh, influencing your outlook on the war itself, you know, coming from a conservative family, where was that anti-war nature coming from within you? Was it the group of people you were around? Can you talk about how, how you got there? I wish I could say exactly what came first. Yeah. Uh, but in my, the summer between my uh, junior and senior year of high school, I began uh, walking to the university campus and I'd go to poetry readings. Oh, cool. Uh, I mean, I was, I, I, I think poetry actually, now that we're talking about it, is probably what drew me in. I'd go to poetry readings, which were a big thing back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, pre-internet, pre all kinds yeah. of things. That was a way young people would often get together for poetry readings. Oh, how cool. Um, it's almost out of the beatnik tradition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there were some of these, at, there was, a, I forget the name of the church, but I think it was one of the universe, universalist Unitarian churches had mm-hmm. a student center on the campus. And so that was for the free thinkers. So I would go to these poetry readings and I'd bring some of my own poems, which weren't very good, but um, people sure would tolerate them. <laughs> But I was also good at reading others' poetry. So that's what I would often do. And so I got invited a lot. And then I'd get invited to parties. And I'd get invited to a party where there's marijuana. And what am I going to do but try it? Right, right, right. Obviously, the first few times, I just cough it up. Yeah, yeah. After after a while, I got into it. And um, I got very much part of the marijuana culture in in Tucson, which was uh, pretty extensive. Though... um, Back in those days, this is the middle 1960s, 66 really is when I started. There would be often be times when there wasn't marijuana in town, Got just it. because uh, smuggling, um, if people were going to smuggle marijuana, mm-hmm. they'd want to take it further. <laughs> oh, much okay, I see. Yeah. More money than yeah. just taking it to Tucson. <laughs> yeah, so there, was a, there was a much different kind of trade in Tucson. I wasn't you know, high up in the dealing network i didn't know at all but Mm -hmm. i knew that oftentimes you couldn't get marijuana and so one of the things you asked for stories so one of the things people would do uh is we drive 
across the border. Uh, it was only 60 miles from, from Tucson. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was pretty relaxed in those days. Uh, and you could go across and buy a quantity of marijuana and then go out in the hill somewhere and bring food and drinks and spend the evening just getting high. I, I read that uh, in your book, a brick, right? I remember those yeah. days of getting a brick of weed. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. No, it, it was easier to get because yeah. if you go to certain dealers, they wouldn't sell you lids or anything. Right, right, right. So, anyway, so we used to have incredible fun just going down and getting high the other side of the boat or then relaxing till we were, you know, enough of us were clear headed enough to drive back. There was a lot of fun times. Yeah. I was going to say, so there, there is, you know, one of my, one of my questions is just there, there just seems to be such a, an age of innocence, I guess, when I was reading your, reading your book, like there was this, and, and of course not all of it, but when I think about like today's, the idea of like teenagers casually driving over the border and, uh, like do, smoking weed and doing all these things. Um, it just feels like so much has changed now with, you know, crime and the danger and, uh, and even with drugs, you know, like there's no, there's no longer an experimental phase, unfortunately for the youth out here today, you know, with, especially with like fentanyl everywhere in the supply. And it's, it's a time where I feel like there's, it's a bummer when I, when I, I, I was so touched by like the freedom that it felt at that time, because there wasn't this overarching sense of like, God, there's so much danger out there. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Was that, was, you know, were your parents on you about like, where are you all the time? Or was it, was there a sense of freedom that really isn't felt like that is today? It's a good question. I, I think we did feel much freer than kids did to do today mm -hmm. uh, because of not only the, uh, the hyper, uh, the war on drugs that came later. Right. I mean, it was much more relaxed in the early sixties, Sure, uh, but also it's more than just the, um, the drug culture. It's also, um, a, you know, the pill had just come about a few years before and yes. sexual freedom was something that was beginning that more and more people were accepting. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was well before AIDS or any other, or HIV or right. any other thing. So there was, the freedom was in many different levels. Uh, it was free love and mm -hmm. the acceptance of drugs uh, and less of an oppressive law and order situation. Mm -hmm. uh, and there wasn't as, for a while, there wasn't as much of a mixing of the the, the drug cultures. I mean, the people who were using uh methamphetamine and uh, heroin were on another side oh interesting. they were okay. they were they were they were way apart right it was different completely than the people were just using marijuana and psychedelics which was much more calm and relaxed of place yeah. than the pe people who were uh, using heroin and methamphetamine which were almost naturally gravitating towards uh Crime. Yeah, interesting. And you were saying so you you went into the uh, the good old drug dealing business for a little bit, selling LSD. How was was the quant the quality of the LSD you got at that time? Was there ever any worry for you guys about like where it was coming from? Or at that time, was it all kind of the pure stuff? Like, did you ever hear stories about how it's not what you thought you were going to get, or or was it really just in its kind of the height of its purity at that point? Well, the chemist I worked with uh, 
did made pure LSD. Yeah. Uh, LSD, as I understand, I'm not a chemist, but as I understand from them, it's not all that hard to make. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's 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 difficult, but it's uh, maybe a barely a step above what you saw on Breaking Bad and the guy making it in his right. trailer off. Yeah, of, right. You know, it's not that much harder. Uh, and they did some very pure, the people I worked with. Mm-hmm. Others uh, would sometimes mix. Uh, Osley was known for sometimes putting speed in his acid. Uh, okay. And not necessarily telling people. Small amounts. Right. I mean, not, but he, he was experimenting. Got it. Uh, so there were different things you could get. But mm-hmm. for the most part, I think it was pretty straightforward, pure LSD. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, standard doses, people thought, you know, you needed to have 250 micrograms or 250 micrograms, micrograms milligrams. <laughs> I'll get the No, micrograms, right? Up. Yeah, yeah. Micrograms. Yeah, micrograms. There we go. Yeah, there we yeah. go. Uh, gray hair, I get to. <laughs> I know you're doing great. <laughs> micrograms, 250, so we, that's we had, a heavy, that's, you know, a, that's a strong dose. <laughs> Yeah, well, that was that was pretty much the norm back then. Okay, that was the norm. Uh, I mean, that was I mean, I recall from when we'd split up uh, a gram, you get four thousand doses out of a gram. That's mm-hmm. two hundred and fifty. As I understand, it's you know people take smaller doses today. I mean, besides when the microdose movement, which is you know micro doses, but uh, no people back then tend to take significant heavy doses yeah well that i mean that that is like a big fundamental difference uh because when you when you when you talk about a dose today it's around 125 100 125 is like a dose however albert albert hoffman who who is you know the father of lsd he he actually he experimented with 250 and maybe that also became a benchmark in a way of like that's what he's doing and this is his experience and so it just became and and obviously the really wanting to like have a psychedelic trip. Like if you want to have a psychedelic trip, like when I do one tab and this is personal for me, I, or one tab now today is like, yeah, usually like a hundred, 125 micrograms. I'm not like tripping on that. Now, some people are, again, everybody listening, chemistry, body chemistry, all different, but I feel like it is within that 250 realm that it becomes the psychedelic experience that we see in art at times. Yeah, um, there's there's no turning back. You've yeah, opened a door and you've gone gone through it with you, 250. You've gone minutes. in. Yeah, you're doing this. How many times do you think you've done LSD in your life? 30, 40. I'm not sure. Not probably 30, 40. Okay. And then a number of trips on other things. Yeah. Psilocybin mostly. Yeah, I love yeah. psilocybin. Me too. Me too. I, do I you was, have a, you have a preference? Uh, today, if well, I in the last few years, the only <laughs> thing I've taken is psilocybin. Yeah, yeah. So. It's just you know what it is with 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 acid is it's just it's a long day. It's just a big yes. commitment. It's just a you're in there. <laughs> you're, it's like, a buckle up, twelve hours or nine to twelve, whatever you know, depending on what you took. But <laughs> and you can you can uh, you can do all kinds of things to avoid it, mm-hmm. but you can have a bad trip on LSD. Totally. Having a bad trip on psilocybin, I don't. I never have. <laughs> I think to me, it, it feels like with psilocybin, I can sort of move the action in the way I want it. You know what's so interesting about that? I've actually heard this. Is I love that you brought this up because I've I've heard it a little bit on the reverse, where um, LSD being a little bit more in the driver's seat. But again, I think that's dose dependent, right? Like, oh, true. It, it's just if you're on a very heavy dose of LSD. And as we know, LSD is not created equally. So whoever made it, some, it's just so much more potent, even though it's the same amount, like the actual 
way it was created is just an entirely different experience um, where, where mushrooms can be, I think maybe more emotional, uh, like more of like an emotional feeling, but it sounds like to me with you is that you're just from maybe years of, of being in these experiences, an openness and a letting go that allows yourself to flow through your experiences, including with, with psilocybin, where there's not a lot of resistance to what's coming up, which then therefore makes it enjoyable. Uh, yeah, no, the resistance is um, <laughs> pointless. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It'll try. It'll it'll most definitely try. But um, so when you were leaving Arizona, uh, obviously you your soul was already hungry for something different, more people thinking like you, being in a culture and a society that was more along with your peers as opposed to just maybe like groups. Was it still a bit of a culture shock even for you when you turn up in uh, Haight-Ashbury in the midst of this kind of flower oh, child definitely. era? Like what what was your mind going through? You're like, holy shit. Oh, definitely. It was, um, you know, coming from Tucson mm-hmm. where uh, you could round up all the usual suspects of the counterculture types. And right. Maybe there'd be a hundred, maybe, maybe, you know. It, all of a sudden, I could walk down the street, and uh, other than a few straight people who were mm-hmm. still living in Haight-Ashbury at the time, I mean, everybody was like me. I mean, right? You know, in some ways, and so I felt so much more at home and relaxed. Yeah. All of a sudden, I, there wasn't the other, right? You know, and I wasn't the other. I was, I was in the group. Yeah, uh, and that was so uh, calming and mm-hmm. relaxing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just felt like I'm home. Yeah. Uh, until, you know, and, and it lasted for a while. I mean, Head Ashbury, I mean, people argue, some people argue it ended in 66. I don't, I don't think so. I, it's somewhere and definitely by the end of 67, it had, uh, there were too many negative influences coming mm. in. But for a while, it was um, psychedelic paradise. Can you talk about what those negative influences were in 67? What what was the, what was considered the high, high point? What was that sweet spot era in, in during that Head Ashbury time? And and then what did 67 start to bring in? I Well, I think the two high points, the two things that kept it really high were, one, there was very little law enforcement. Okay. I mean, the things we were doing were illegal, marijuana for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, LSD was still legal, I think, through the end of 66. Uh, but then it was illegal. Uh, a large part of the economy, in effect, if you talk about the economy, of Haight-Ashbury was um based on drugs, selling drugs right. in some way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was that. So we were vulnerable in that way, but law enforcement really wasn't there. They didn't know how to deal with it. They didn't know how. I mean, if, if right. you went to some other uh, drug culture, a traditional heroin, they'd know the usual suspects. They, they'd know. Mm-hmm. But with Haight-Ashbury and everybody looking so different, <laughs> the cops, A, didn't fit in. Right. They didn't know the lingo. Yeah. They didn't know who to deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a totally... So the law enforcement for quite a while was really lax. Got it. Because okay. they didn't know how to get in. Yeah. Um, and after a while, they got in uh, primarily because uh, luckily they'd bust somebody. And then some of those people they'd bust would then become helpers to the police. And then that's, that's how the law enforcement um, influence grew uh, and made life more difficult. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the end of... Uh, 67, or certainly by the beginning of 68, the law enforcement was there. Got it. Uh, and they began to do really some cracking down. 
they began to, you know, get some intelligence, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> mostly by informers, mm-hmm. uh, and that began to make life more difficult. Got it. The other thing that happened is um, after a while, I mean, I'd say in the beginning, the people that came to hate Ashbury came sincerely because they felt not only an affinity for taking marijuana and LSD, mm-hmm. but an affinity for uh, peace for mm-hmm. anti-war they may not be political but they definitely weren't into war mm-hmm. they were they were good people they were honest yeah, yeah. <laughs> they weren't thieves and yeah. maybe somebody might steal if they were you know hungry sure, whatever, but sure. they weren't they weren't real criminals yeah. but after a while the openness of Haight ashbury uh attracted uh people who were coming just for the drugs mm-hmm. and not with the same values that were there in the beginning yeah so so I'd say what really hurt Haight-Ashbury after a while was the more strenuous law enforcement and that the mix of people changed to sure. a greater proportion of people who didn't have all the values from the beginning. I think that makes a really great point. It's like always that pendulum swinging, right? It swings one way really hard, then it swings the other way really hard. And unfortunately, we never found the middle at that time because then <laughs> what it was at 1970s when Nixon declared the war on drugs? Right? Yeah. Do I have that right? Nixon so, did that. Yeah. yeah. Nixon so did that. so it was already creeping and then just boom, kibosh on the whole serious. Yeah. How was that for you? I mean, the whole culture just got like at least it was attempted to be silenced in such a such a profound way. I mean, did you feel like you were having did you ever have run ins with the what do you call them, like the, the straight folks over here? Like the straight, it's like, you know, that are into the war or, um, or, you know, we're just by the book, we're behind the war, all that stuff. Like, did you feel like you could get along with others or was there a lot of tension even within the U.S. if you were on the counterculture side or the other side? There, there was a lot of tension. So you were careful where you were. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember going into a, this was, I went back to Tucson once. Uh, and this would have been maybe 1969 and just went into some restaurant and then got harassed by right. <laughs> people just yelling at us, you know? Uh, and I always had to be careful for that, that because I, I, I'm sort of a peaceful sort, but I'm six foot four and fairly big. Got it. I, I could react to these things, yeah. but then I have to realize I'm here with other people. There's mm-hmm. just one of me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. No, no, no. I have, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to take it, you know, I have to take it. Because, yeah. Yeah. And it's a, so, it's a thing with big guys, right? That like, sometimes you get more shit because like guys get all, I don't yeah, know, like no, there's, there's, they're intimidated by like a big guy. So then they go the, the reverse and then try and provoke a no, little that bit. That does happen. It and, does. And so I just have to, no, no, no. Yeah. 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 Be yeah. cool, Paul. Be cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's wild. Uh, but, um, it, uh, you know, there, there, there were, um, I'd say there were peaceable people, you know, in, in the straight culture, the straight world, yeah. but um, there, there are also an incredible amount of, you know, difficult, jerky people who would, yeah. you know, just be um, mean and vicious, but uh, you'd stay, just try and stay calm and stay away from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, there was a, there was a thing too of um, just being cool, which was part of uh, the 
counterculture. Right. Uh, you didn't want to create problems. You yeah. didn't want to attract attention. I mean, if, if you think about it, I mean, back then we were living outside the law mm -hmm. uh, in so many ways. It wasn't just the drugs. We were hiding runaways or we were a runaway. Right. We were hiding draft dodgers or we were a draft dodger. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we were cohabitating, which back then was, was illegal in some places mm -hmm. and would get you in all kinds of trouble. So we were doing all kinds of things that were outside the law. And on top of that, we were dressing to show that, yes, we were doing all these things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was showing that. <laughs> yeah, it's me. So, Took a spotlight. I'm breaking, yeah. I'm probably breaking the law. I don't know. <laughs> so so we, there was a sort of an ethos of cool, you know, yeah. which really came from the beat, from the ghetto and from beatniks, mm -hmm. but the hippies certainly adopted it. Mm -hmm. And so when you were with straight people or near them, you didn't make any extra noise or anything yeah. extra to inflame the situation. Yeah, that makes you a lot of sense. cool. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Were you drafted? No, no. Well, I had to go to a draft physical. Okay. Uh, and actually, there's a scene from that. Some of the book, the, let me back up for a second. The book is not a memoir. It's a novel. Mm -hmm. But the main character is very close to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are some scenes that I took right out of my own history. Mm -hmm. And the draft physical is one of them. Oh, okay. I, I did have to go to a draft physical because of, well, it was yeah. the time that you yeah, went to a draft physical. And do it, yeah. I got, I uh, just uh, played a game. I I went uh, the night before my draft physical, I took some psilocybin, <laughs> uh, knowing that in the morning, because I'd taken psilocybin before, that uh, I'd be really tired and mm -hmm. I'd probably look really haggard and i wanted that look when i went into the physical got i wanted it. that look of there's a stoner and he's got it really got it yeah. what's going on around yeah. him yeah that's the look i wanted so mm -hmm. i went into the draft physical and i just played all kinds of games while i was there and um it, and like with worked. the tests and different things uh and uh i, I thought i was you know getting away with it and in the end, I did, but there was a there was a point of great uh, concern for me is that near the end I get called in to see the psychiatrist, okay. and he knew exactly what I was doing. I was going to say I was like and nobody's tried this before. Ver, <laughs> he let me know very well. I was lucky. Um, in, when I took my physical, I got to do it in Arizona, in Phoenix. Oh, okay. Uh, and I had talked with many of my friends who had known people or themselves taken the physical in Oakland, which is mm -hmm. the place in Northern California where you take it, or in Los Angeles, I forget where in LA, but, uh, and there, they were all completely aware of the games people would play. Right. And they just send you off. Oh, totally. But in Phoenix, but I was in Phoenix and there were hardly any freaks in Arizona at the time. Oh, okay. And I may have been one of the first that <laughs> okay. made this game. <laughs> the draft like we don't, we don't need this it guy defending like, our country. That's cool. <laughs> that, that's what it came down to. Actually, the psychiatrist, he realized exactly, he said, but I don't want you in my army. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, that's cool. That's good with me. I'm glad this worked out. <laughs> you shake his yeah. hand. Suddenly, suddenly you're the guy that he kind of hoped you were walking in. You're like, oh, wait, let me not drop the act right yet. <laughs> So anyway, so I did my, I, I, um, I didn't do, uh, one of the things like going to the, uh, draft, uh, board and proclaiming, I don't want to do this and then going to jail. Yeah. I just didn't see that. Uh, I mean, I guess I think in a sense that what might've been more, no, it not might, it would have been more honorable, but I thought what I owed the war was to not 
participate in any way, mm-hmm. period. And yeah. so if I could get out of the draft, then I wasn't participating in what I saw was an evil war. So I that's just, what I did. It's just, it's the youth again, that like has made such a huge difference in like the push. I'm seeing it today, like that parallel. I feel like the youth today is um, the ones that are really pushing back against a lot of what is happening out here, whether it's protesting right now with guns, like just, just, there's a, there's a lot of things that, or in TikTok, like there, the, there's, um, gender, right. Gender fluidity and pronouns. And like they're the, the younger generations in general really are the ones that are, are the movers and shakers. They're seeding, seeding the move because even though, um, it might've looked like it got a little kiboshed, if you will, during that war on on drugs, Nixon era, look where we are. You know, it looks different. It looks different, but all of those, those people like yourself and those that were involved, like continue to do the work. They just had to be very careful. And finally we got here and now we're getting to see how amazing psychedelics are, not just for the enjoyment of them, but also for uh, mental health and all of these different things. Absolutely. I'm, I'm so happy uh, where we've gotten to. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a number of pioneers that, that uh, help get us there, but yeah. uh, it's, it's really quite a very good situation. We're in uh, Oregon has decriminalized uh, uh, mushrooms here in Oakland. They're uh, decriminalized. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I suspect there'll be many more uh, uses found uh, in mental health for treating PTSD and all sorts of things. Uh, yeah. It's just such a, a crime that it was all stopped yeah, I know. Uh, 40 years, 45 years ago. It was yeah. just, all, there was so much research going on at the time. I know. And it was all cut off. It, it's a, it, can you imagine how far we would be right now had we had 40 years of continuing this research? I mean, look, no accidents, right? I guess we're now in the information age. I think that's the one big difference that I always think about is there was no internet but there is now like that cat's out of the bag (laughs) and there's no way of putting that one back now. You know what I mean? And so, um, but I, I do always think about like, wow, 40 years worth of research that we could have been at. Um, but you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, I'd be curious to hear like, what, what is your, what is your feeling about what you're seeing today with psychedelics and how they're, um, the way they're coming back, you know, I would love to know what good you see, with the psychedelic movement today and, and maybe some of the areas that there's that it's either worries you or that you wish had actually, you could still pull a little bit of that sixties era feeling back into the experience. You know, I'd love to know, like, where were you with psychedelics today? Well, I'm, I'm completely supportive of the psychedelic movement and moving psychedelics into the mainstream, mm-hmm. making them legal. Um, I do feel that, you know, some regulation is, is fine. Uh, I, I don't have a problem with that in terms of purity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm all for that. Yeah. Who would be against that? Uh, I'm also um, think, you know, it's possible. And I think you, one of the beauties of the United States is we have 50 states and you can do 50 different things as long as the federal government doesn't get in the way. Right. But I, I think there ought to be opportunities for maybe uh, it, that psilocybin is easy to get, but LSD, you have to get a, you have to actually get a prescription. I, I don't know that that's a bad thing mm-hmm. because some people, I don't know that, you know, I think there are people who are, 
had had pre-existing mental health issues that if they're going to take LSD, it ought to be supervised. Mm-hmm. It's not it's it's not a prescription yet, but they're they're trying to get there to see if that is going to be there in the clinical trials right now for LSD, and it is showing a lot of promise. Um, where you can, they're big big for anxiety right now. Actually, they're looking, which is it's interesting to me because I've had some LSD trips where I was like, did I feel less anxious <laughs> through this experience? <laughs> no, no, I'm not sure that I did, but um, but you know, obviously dose dependent and, and like you're saying with supervision. Um, but that's interesting to hear. So so for you, the, your that freedom to experiment, uh, did you see some downside with that? Is that why your, your feeling is that it's good that, um, that it, there is essentially like a practitioner as opposed to the way that you were able to experiment with LSD? Well, let me put it, I think many people were able to experiment with LSD and do it in a very um, healthy way. Uh-huh. Uh, I also knew some people who did it in a not very healthy way. Sure. I mean, they take LSD one day, and whereas most people, they take LSD one day, well, it'll be a few days before you take it again. Right. There were some people that take it one day and then the next day, and then they began right. to lose contact with, yeah. you know, so there are some who weren't capable of really handling it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and how do you, how do you deal with that in a free society? I I, I don't know really what the answer is. Yeah. Uh, I'm not it again. Fifty states, fifty different ways. Maybe in some states it's anybody who wants it can get it. Yeah. Maybe in others then you have some regulation that mm-hmm. has to be prescribed, and some people may need supervision to take it. Yeah. Um, I, I don't have the answer, but I, I think we can try different things. Yeah, I, I don't uh, think any I, of us do. I think it's it, it's one of the big ones where it's like, what is what is the right path? Is it decriminalization? Is it legalization with regulation, particularly around supply? Like, you know, obviously looking at Amsterdam as like a model of like, you know, you know, is it about harm reduction? Because if it's about harm reduction, then having it legal is actually in, in the best um if it's legalized and can be tested and you know your source, then you know it's not cut with a bunch of other dangerous yeah. chemicals, right? Uh, do I think we're very far away from having like legal LSD? I sure do. I don't know that we're ever going to get there at th- this point. But um, but I, I see your point. You know, I, I can see it really like strongly both ways. And then I also, I think about today, you know, I think about alcohol and I think about it's a free society and how... Some people can handle a drink and then some people can't handle it at all. And they're drinking themselves to death and they're drunks on the street every single day. And, and, and do we, do we then come in and say, because you guys can't handle it, nobody else can either, you know, like that's, that's where I, that's where I land on this type of conversation all the time. And it's, it's, I my mind can argue both ways on this. Um, I tend to lean a little bit more liberal, obviously trip on this, but you know, (laughs) No, I, I lean liberal too. I, I just, I, I know and remember some friends who just were totally lost. And, yeah. Um, ended no, up with a very poor life. Absolutely. And, and psychosis, which is so possible of happening. And, and yeah, I mean, I think uh, this is the delicate dance that we're in because we are dealing, we're talking about some very, very powerful molecules that change an entire society, change the whole United States and culture in the way in which, you know, like you were talking about with this, uh, with the counterculture and, and how much it played such an integral part in expanding our mind and peace and love. And I'd like to, I'd like to bring us back a little bit just to, um, 
a little bit more of a, like a day in the life, if you will. Like, can you give us, it's, it's 1967, it's June, 1967. It's Haight-Ashbury. You're waking up on a Saturday morning. Like what's the day look like? What are you seeing out there? What are the the people wearing? Like, what are we? (laughs) Well, June, it's Haight-Ashbury. So uh, you can't assume it's warm though. Okay. uh, July? So uh, no, it doesn't really get warm in San Francisco until August or September. Okay. All right. June June or July are often pretty cold actually. Okay. Should should we do uh, a summer day then? What do you think? Oh, it's okay. Pick any day. Uh, actually, it's that's more typical. I, I'd say, to me, actually, I have to say that one of the things I liked, I'm not sure everybody would agree with this, one of the things I liked really about the coolness of Haight-Ashbury, I mean, in terms of the weather mm-hmm. and the fog coming through all the time, mm-hmm. is, um, you know, if you woke up from a lengthy acid trip and went out in the bright, bright sunlight, yeah. you know, it's kind of, it's kind of, whoa. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. You know, but if you go out and the fog is there and there's a breeze mm-hmm. and there's trees in the park, you know, it's a totally different, much more relaxed environment. That's such a but good so, point. Okay. So let's go back June 67. So I, let's say I woke up. Um, I don't know. I see had I slept with someone that night? <laughs> Do I, I know them? I love? Do I know? Uh, who, who am I with? You know, who's in the house? Yep. Do we have some uh, uh, friends staying with us or is it just the roommates? Um, so I see who's there, who wants to, do we have anything in the house for breakfast? Is there any food uh, or do I have to go up on the street? Uh, do I want to spend money in a restaurant, which I could? Uh, there used to be a cafe uh, at uh, Hate and Masonic called uh, the Drog Store Cafe, uh-huh. D-R-O-G. Uh, when they, it used to be a pharmacy or a, oh, it's uh, a drug store. Yeah, pharmacy. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and the city wanted, they want the owners wanted to name it the Drug Store Cafe, but the city wouldn't let them do it. Got it. So they called it the Drog Store Cafe. Okay, fair. I used to go there for breakfast now and then. It was kind of a fun place because on the, the back counter, it was one of those old style pharmacies where they do the compounding and things themselves. Mm-hmm. There were all these little cabinets. So it was a nice little place. It's still there. And mm-hmm. I think they still have the old pharmacy cabinets or drawers. But I, I could go up there for breakfast or I'd go one of the bakeries. They had all sorts of Russian bakeries in Haight oh, Street. Oh, interesting. That's because, uh, you know, many different urban neighborhoods have some predominant ethnic group mm-hmm. uh, like a lot of chicago suburbs have polish or lithuanian right. neighborhoods mm-hmm. well hate ashbury used to be russian oh okay uh, i didn't know yeah, that russian immigrants Go oh yeah ahead. russian immigrants there were lots of them mm-hmm. i mean i don't know if they're first generation or second but they were definitely russian got it <laughs> and there were lots of their bakeries which and they make some you know everybody has you know different cultures have different baked goods but mm-hmm. Russian one's pretty darn good. And they had the little uh, Poroshkis. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I might go up there for breakfast. I'd meet people along the way. I might meet somebody smoking a joint. Uh, I might talk with somebody about a party that's happening that night or one that we're putting on. Um, Did you throw a lot of parties? I might then. uh, We we threw some, yeah. Yeah. Uh, We weren't the most partying, but uh, there were other. Our our flat, the main flat I lived in, for the most of the time that I was in Haight-Ashbury didn't have that great a partying space. Got it. Okay. It was a nice flat, but mm-hmm. it didn't have a big room yeah, for that. Yeah. But we had some more low key. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
But then then I might walk, go over to Hippie Hill, which was uh, in the park. I mean, Golden Gate Park, this beautiful park, basically started in Haight-Ashbury and then went all the way to the ocean. Uh, and I might go over this uh, grassy knoll. I shouldn't call it the grassy knoll. It sounds like the JFK. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, but there was this grassy sort of low hill yeah, yeah. Uh, near the Conservatory of Flowers. Uh, and people would just hang out there smoking joints. And right near there was the Conservatory of Flowers, uh, this um, glass building with all kinds of flowers in it. And people would love to get stoned and walk around in there. Uh, the, the humidity and, mm-hmm. and the flowers mm-hmm. and the, the, the insects pollinating. That was quite an experience when you were high. I bet. And it was amazing because not only was the Conservatory of Flowers there, but nearby was the aquarium. Yeah. Uh, and that was another great thing to go uh, in. Sure. Uh, especially when you're it, high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been improved dramatically. It's uh, the aquarium that's there now virtually in the same place. It's much nicer. But mm-hmm. there was one back then. So there are all these things right near Hate Street. It's the Golden Gate Park, mm-hmm. Panhandle, different things. So there was always action. Oh, there was there was action. In fact, I'm glad you mentioned action. One of the things that was so st- stood out for me about mm-hmm. the 60s is there was always something happening. Yeah. It was such an alive era. Mm-hmm. Uh, not always good things. I mean, assassinations, <laughs> right, riots, right, I mean, right. all kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, the human being, there were just things happening constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and new things, too, where people were exploring. Uh, it wasn't uh, a dead culture that yeah. was, um, it, w- it was alive. And that's one of the things I'll just say, I t- really tried to do in the book, I tried to use a lot of very short descriptions Mm-hmm. And a lot of action scenes. And I tried to start wherever it made sense. I'd start sentences with verbs just to get that feeling of mm-hmm. movement and action. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, there there was it was just constant. Uh, you didn't have to plan much because uh, nice. something was always going to happen. And and it was it was it like a way? I mean, obviously, it's before cell phones and things. So when you guys are finding out plans, is it you're just going for a walk and finding out, like you're saying, like you just got breakfast, you meet up with a guy, you smoke a joint. Oh, what are you what are you doing tonight? Got it. Where are you where is it? And then you just show up yeah. later that night. Like, is it just pretty much, pretty wow. much? Or you know, we'd learned you know there are concerts all the time too, mm-hmm. uh, and the concerts then were were rather different. I mean, sometimes there were free concerts in either the Panhandle or in the park, mm-hmm. or a couple of times they closed off Hate Street at a concert. Uh, but the venues, the Fillmore and the um, Avalon, were much smaller. Uh, the Avalon, I think, don't quote me exactly on this, but there's roughly 400, 500 people at the most. Okay. Uh, in the film, the Fillmore, the original Fillmore, which was on Fillmore Street, um, was only like 800, 900 people. So you'd go to, they're not like going to a football stadium sure. where there's 50,000 people. <laughs> you're going to a place, the Avalon, where it's four or 500 people and you may know half of them or okay. have seen them around. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the going to concerts was uh, also a, a very regular thing. And, you know, the posters that you see today, that's how we knew about what was the concert because they'd be posted on uh, at the oh, print mint, cool. which was, yeah. and they'd be posted on uh, telephone poles and all kinds of places. Oh, that's how we know what the next concert was. That is so or, fun. Or you'd read it and there were a couple of free or very inexpensive papers. Um, 
God, I'm blanking on the names now, but there were a couple of those mm -hmm, that were mm -hmm. circulated. There was one in Berkeley. There was one in on Haight Street that was printed right there. Um, so that's how we'd learn about concerts. And we. That just seems so, so fun. Even just like free music concerts. And I mean, I, I think that's like, if I have like an image of the 1960s in that time of people like dancing and tripping and being on grass and in the park, like, was that all part of the experience? Was that oftentimes yes. what it really looks like? Frequently. Yeah. No, frequently. Yep. Different bands, uh, impromptu and, um, some you may have heard of, some you you know, just new band trying to get some publicity. They set up in the park. Wow. Uh, was and, was San Francisco uh, expensive like it is today? No, no, no. That, that's that's another thing that's really hard for people to. I I really wish I'd kept track of some things more precisely, but I think my rent on one room mm -hmm. in a flat on Hate on Fell Street, you know, just uh, bordering the the Panhandle, this long lengthy park. Mm -hmm. I think I paid like 40 bucks a month. Oh my God. Those must've been the, I mean, obviously I know it's uh, no. in, in the, in whatever the, the difference yeah, is right the now. Inflation like, yeah, is yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's still, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was insignificant. I mean, so oh. much of life back then was uh, possible because rents yeah. were cheap. Mm -hmm. uh, there hadn't been, you know, an ex such an explosion of real estate values and real estate development. Mm -hmm. And San Francisco wasn't as that popular then. I mean, yeah. the area, you know, the, there there was also, you know, the, it was the civil rights era, which we were certainly in favor of, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but it, it also had its um, um, unintended effects. Right. In, in, for example, one of the reasons people started moving out of Haight-Ashbury mm -hmm. and there were vacant space there is because the Fillmore was increasing uh, the black neighborhood oh, was growing it. and mm -hmm. moving mm -hmm. and the older white people in the hate were upset at that and right. they'd leave. Right. And then there's these spaces that were very inexpensive and the counterculture yeah. came in and, yeah. and took them. Yeah. Wow. Uh, That's so and, it would fascinating. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm, I'm just, it's the, everything was much less expensive then. And it's just mind boggling that today, even when I started college, I mean, my tuition was, it was, you know, a few hundred bucks, I think, a semester. Mm -hmm. It was just totally different than I, yeah, uh, yeah. today. It, it's it's harder to have a revolution when you're when you're spending most of your waking time just making your rent. I mean, that is a quote in and of itself right there. Like, absolutely, because just basic survival is, it's very, it's, you have to work so many hours for not a not a lot. I mean, depending on like the jobs that you have, but I remember even my, my, uh, my grandmother had one job raising four kids when, when my, uh, my mom's dad had died at 42 and it was one job supporting, she had never worked in her life either. So it couldn't have been like some high up on the ladder job. I think she was like a secretary raising herself and four young kids under the age of 12 and also still getting to do things. And they went on trips together and, and I just, all I could think about was like, but how, <laughs> like how in this, how in this climate, like how, how is that possible? And realizing like, yeah, things, that's one of the big things that has changed a lot. That's, that feels like a bummer because I think that also added probably to the sense of freedom that your basic survival wasn't front and center at that point. No, it wasn't. And, um, you know, we had people would have rent parties regularly if they couldn't make the rent. 
they just have a rent party, which was nothing more than getting some beer and having people come over and taking a few bucks at the door and you'd have a party and you'd cover your rent. I love like, that. I it happened that. all the time. People did oh it all the time. God. And you don't hear about that anymore. I know. You'd have to charge how much. To- oh my, yeah, you know, exactly how much you're like all right it's going to be a hundred dollars at the door please thank you so much for 150 depending where you're at (laughs) that is very funny um before we uh just finish up on your book is there one last memorable story at this time that uh would just be a fun thing especially for the younger people out there to hear like maybe a big juxtaposition or any memory that you're incredibly fond of that's coming to you at this moment in time the vivid memory that's coming to me right now is um, my girlfriend who became my first wife. When we first started living together, mm-hmm. I remember taking acid together and having just such a incredible time and where we basically at one point just melted into each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's all I'll leave you with. I, love I don't that. think it needs any further. <laughs> I think we know where it goes from there, Paul. <laughs> Uh, but that's awesome. So why don't we just finish up talking about this book? I mean, we've talked a little bit about it. So it's not a memoir, but it is uh, based on some real events, your story. What can you tell us about the book? Well, let me tell you first how, how it started. Because that's kind of interesting. Sure. I had had a couple of writing projects that didn't go, get very far. Uh, and I even self-published one thing once. And then I decided that really wasn't very good. And I was really struggling trying to find a project to, that I could grip. Mm-hmm. And my, I have four kids, um, all doing very well, all professionals now. And um, at one point, two of them told me, knowing that I'd had an interesting uh, adolescence, mm-hmm. they knew they knew what had happened. <laughs> they asked me to put together a timeline for them. Oh. And all they really wanted to know was, I, put, I dropped out of high school here. I went to Haight-Ashbury. I met their mother, this kind of thing, right, you know, right, dates right. and rough yes. I thought, wait a minute, that's it. Oh, that's what that's I should cool. write. That's such, it, of course, your story. But of my course. story. I thought, wait a minute, I have it here. I have it. This is an incredible, iconic period in American life. Yeah. It was a real crucible for me. If I can't write something about this, then I can't write. Oh, my God. So, of course. Of course, And, yeah, and you've, no, and you've got why? such a colorful backdrop. It's not like you have to, yeah. like, you know, fluff up the, the 60s era. I'm like, you're in it. You're doing no, it. No, no, I was right there. Yeah. I don't have to. And so, uh, so I started. And at first, I started actually writing a memoir. And then I realized there were certain people in my life back then I really didn't feel comfortable writing about. Right. For many different reasons, mm-hmm. good and bad. I mm-hmm, just. Mm-hmm. So I thought, wait a minute. Well, let's, I can write a novel. It yeah. gives me more freedom. Yeah. I can. Uh, leave out the boring bits. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I can play with the characters. Mm-hmm. I can play with the timeline. Um, and so I started writing a novel. Yeah, it gives you the freedom it back. Took, it, it took quite a while, mm-hmm. uh, seven years until I actually got a, a, re, a good contract. Okay. And okay. then after I got a good contract, it was a little more than two years before because I had to fit in with the publisher's schedule. Sure, so, sure. So it was another two, two and a half years before it was actually came out last November. Uh, it was a lot of work, uh, a lot of editing. At first, it might have gone quicker if I wasn't so naive in the beginning. Mm. I mean, I thought I was done early on. Well, right, 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 right. Lo and behold, I really wasn't. Yeah. And so I, I learned to respect professional editors, mm-hmm. and I ended up having two uh, uh, who did different things. It was important to have two yeah. uh, for me. 
And and uh, then I think I got to a book point where I really liked the book, and I got a publisher who liked it. And wow. so, so there we are. Well, congratulations. That's It's a big feat to get a publisher, to, to write a novel. I mean, I have one in my mind. Like I have like the software, and that's as far as we've gone. I, it just, <laughs> it's such a, it is such a, um, it's a big task. And I mean, nine years to, to create something like, what a beautiful body of work. But now it is in many ways, your memoir, plus your creativity, your kids got what they wanted, plus more. And now dad's a published author on a podcast yep. talking about it, like super <laughs> cool. I love that. Yeah, no, I, I, I like it. And um, I had some other good luck too. Um, I, early on, I looked for who else had written about the hate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there later I found out there are a lot of self-published memoirs, yeah. but that's not what attracted me back then. Um, there's uh, Maxine Hong Kingston's book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I found one by James Fadiman, who's, oh. I don't know if you know, oh, who's yeah. the psychedelic researcher, who's mm-hmm. the, really the father of the microdose movement. Yep. He had actually been doing research in the hate in 66 and 67. He, he was like a PhD graduate student uh-huh. at that time. Maybe he already had his PhD yeah, and yeah. he was doing post work, but you know, in that, that's the field he was in. Sure. Um, and he wrote a book called the other side of the hate, which I got a copy of, which is a fiction mm-hmm. set in the hate. And I read it and I, you know, parts of it resonated with me. And my main feeling was, gosh, this, this is an interesting book, but it's like, he wasn't actually there. So then I, I got in touch with him and we started talking back and forth. We, I talked about his book and he said, and he read mine and he was very helpful and pointing mm-hmm. me things I should do and shouldn't do. And he hated the ending, had me change the ending. <laughs> okay. But, but it was a great help because he had tried to write one there and he recognized his own shortcomings yeah. because he was there in the hate, but he was apart from it. He was a researcher right. on the outside. Yeah. He wasn't inside. Mm-hmm. And you're you're just going to pick up different things. Totally. You're going to pick it up much more carefully and more in detail if you're actually there. Exactly. Uh, and so I think that's another thing I'm really proud of the book is I think it really puts you there. It captures the scene. Yeah. And I think you can allow yourself to feel like you're actually there while you're reading the book. I love it. Well, on that note, where can people get it? Is it online, Amazon? Where, where's the best oh, place? Oh, you to can get, get it anywhere books are for sale. Now, Great. if you go into a bookstore, they may not be stocking it, okay. but the, the terms are such that they can easily order it. Okay. It's also on Amazon and all the other Perfect. online retailers. My, my preference though is to call or walk into your local bookstore. I okay. love bookstores yep. and I want them to thrive. So uh, that's my preference. All right. All right, people, you heard it here first. If you're going to get this book, go and do it the traditional way and support the bookstores. I agree. Amazon is convenience, but it's taking over everything. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, and online, are you online at all? Can people get in touch with you? Oh, I, you can easily get in touch with me. Uh, I have a website. Okay. It's very simple. www.pauljustison.com. Perfect. That's P-A-U-L. J-U-S-T-I-S-O-N.com. And there's a place to contact me on there. There's some reviews of the book, et cetera, on there. And if I could just add one more thing. There's a site called Mm bookshop.org. Just bookshop.org. It's the anti-Amazon. 
it works with independent bookstores. And oh. if you buy through bookshop.org, you can specify a bookstore that will get a part of the profits. Or if you don't specify one, the profits will just go into a pool for all the independent bookstores. So it's run sort of by, or it's an association of bookstores that created it. And it's the anti-Amazon, bookshop.org. Oh my gosh, bookshop. I've never heard of it, but I'm going to absolutely check that out. And I'll make sure to link that as well for our episode to make sure people can get their book also there. Uh, Paul, such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for taking us back. Uh, I, I hope everyone gets a chance to read your book. And I'm grateful. <laughs> I'm absolutely grateful you came on and shared your story. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Kat. Awesome. And for everyone, right. as always... Trip on this.